2: Maybe they did, maybe they didn't.
0: (laughs) But here's what we do know about Second City Barbecue. Rib tips and hot links, particularly those served on the south side of Chicago, draw upon generations of culinary expertise learned in the American South and then packed up and transported to Chicago during the Great Migration.
2: You're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. In this batch of gravy, SFA
0: explores barbecue. Listen as we spread the coals, flip the hog, and stir them up.
2: Along the way, we'll share stories of Southern pitmasters from Idaho to South Carolina. Our next stop is Chicago. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. After this quick break, Courtney DeLong takes us to Chicago.
0: Every now and again, we recommend a podcast we like. And guess what? One of our favorites, Vanishing Postcards, is back. Hosted by Texas native Evan Stern, its latest season invites listeners to ride shotgun as Evan Motors West cross country on Route 66. Perfect for when you need a breather, but don't have the luxury of hitting the open road, you can join Evan's trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and tell Evan, Gravy said hey.
1: When people think about the best barbecue cities in America, they often think about places like Memphis, Kansas City, Austin, all places either in or near the American South. In doing so, however, they neglect one of the country's most exciting and innovative barbecue hubs, Chicago's South Side. There, melt-in-your-mouth rib tips and spicy hot links sit upon beds of French fries. They're topped with slices of white bread and served with sweet and tangy sauce in takeaway styrofoam containers.
3: Well, you know, my my, my grandfather, we had a neighbor, and he, Phil Peterson, he was, he was the barbecue king of Lambert. Uh, and I used to go over just to... Eat some of his barbecue. I sit around and be with him all day long. He was an old gentleman, which is no longer around anymore.
1: This is Charlie Robinson, the founder of Robinson's number one ribs in Oak Park, Illinois. Barbecue is a cooking style he first encountered in his hometown of Lambert, Mississippi, which is in Quitman County in the Mississippi Delta. There, barbecue was a big part of his childhood and his community.
3: Everybody in Lambert in, in the adjacent areas would come over on weekends to have uh, and try and have some of nice his barbecue, and, and I liked his sauce. He made a coleslaw, too, was awesome, uh, and I've been trying to duplicate that sauce.
1: Charlie loves his friends and family in Lambert. Still, though, he chose to leave his home state of Mississippi when he graduated from high school. Born on April 30th, 1946, Charlie is a black man who came of age during the Jim Crow era, he did not see the opportunities to create the life that he wanted for himself in the Mississippi Delta. Growing up, his family worked as sharecroppers.
3: We didn't really make a good living at being a sharecropper because at the end of the year, uh, the owner of the plantation would come and tell us that we broke even, which was very disappointing to us along so those lines.
1: After graduating high school, Charlie attended York College in Nebraska on a basketball scholarship.
3: I just couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait to get out of the state mississippi mm-hmm. you know, and i don't dislike the state at all it's my home, but uh, uh, the opportunities yeah.
1: after graduating from college charlie moved to chicago with helen his high school sweetheart and soon-to-be wife there he took a job at an ice cream distributor outside of work though he continued to tinker with his barbecue recipes in 1982 he won a well-publicized rib making contest and became something of a local barbecue celebrity He leveraged this newfound fame to open Robinson's number one ribs. He still lives in the Chicago area, but he often goes home to Quitman County, where he's involved in community development efforts. Charlie's ribs and his business will always be connected to Quitman County. The story of his restaurant, much like the story of Chicago style barbecue itself, begins, at least in part, with the Great Migration. From 1910 to 1970, six million Black Americans left their homes in the South and moved elsewhere in the country. These migrants not only sought higher wages and civil freedoms, but they also fled the violence of the Jim Crow South. Chicago became a major destination, especially for migrants from states like Alabama and Mississippi in the Deep South region. From 1910 to 1940, the city's total Black population grew fivefold. By 1970, it had grown from under 50,000 to over a million. Here is Dr. Marsha Chatlin, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who studies women's history, the Great Migration, and food history.
4: Well, you know, in terms of migration, it was both um, incredible kind of optimism about what was possible, as well as some kind of pragmatic decisions. So the reason why we see so many people from Mississippi and then Alabama coming to Chicago is because of the train routes.
1: Railroads, and later buses, connected the Deep South to the Midwest. The Illinois Central Railroad, for example, stopped in Jackson and Memphis before taking passengers to Chicago's Central Station. Once early migrants traveled to Chicago, they established community networks that encouraged friends and family to join them.
4: There was a real clear sense that part of the experience of northern migration would be to kind of keep keep connected. This is Dr. Chatlin. And so, you know, the first thing that migrants did when they started to settle into the city was to think about ways that they could preserve their cultures from back home.
1: Barbecue was one of many practices that made the journey north. Chicago-style barbecue grew out of the meat-smoking traditions of the Mississippi Delta. Early migrants built outdoor smokers made from box springs or empty barrels. Pitmasters set up takeaway stands in vacant lots and front lawns across the city's Black neighborhoods. Not all black Chicagoans approved of the practice, though. In the early 1920s, the Chicago Defender, the nation's premier black-run newspaper, ran multiple criticisms of the barbecue being made in Chicago. One 1922 editorial even dubbed the barbecue joints run by newly-arrived Southerners as, quote, open-air grease joints and fly traps. Still, the practice flourished, and soon, ersatz smoker stands evolved into brick-and-mortar stores with custom indoor barbecue pits. As they faced discrimination, redlining, and even debilitating homesickness, black migrants built neighborhoods and community structures that supported each other and welcomed new black Chicagoans. As the Great Migration progressed, barbecue joints and other restaurants became important parts of this community infrastructure. Dr. Chatlin explains. Well, one of the things that
4: emerges um, as a result of the Great Migration is that there's a lot of access comparatively to disposable income and a lot of entertainment venues. There are um, beer gardens and theaters and roller skating rinks. There's just a lot of places where people can enjoy a kind of leisure culture that wasn't as um, expansive in the South as it was in the North. And so as a result, the idea of you know black patrons going to
1: a restaurant where they could be treated with respect is no small thing. For many migrants, Black-owned restaurants were important both personally and politically.
4: Um, whether it was the famed Army's, um, Army and Loos, whether it was um, you know a local um, lunch counter that actually served African Americans, it's a very big deal for someone to be able to go to a restaurant in the context of mid-century America because we know that restaurants were not only a site, of racial discrimination, but they could be a site of incredible violence when people um, questions or pushed back against the color line.
2: When we come back, we'll hit all the hot link and rib tip spots on the south side. But first, do you know cast iron does some of its best work outside? Whether you're cooking over the campfire or a grill, Lodge Cast iron skillets, griddles, and grill baskets bring the taste of summer to your next food adventure. Their camp and Dutch ovens love to tag along too, helping you bring favorite recipes to the great outdoors. Crafted in America with just iron and oil, Lodge Cast Iron helps you turn every meal into an outdoor masterpiece. Go to lodgecastiron.com to shop the full collection and savor the outdoors. Lodge's longtime support of the Southern Foodways Alliance and this podcast. We thank them.
0: Hi, it's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And tell them Gravy said hey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Dr. Barbara Ann Bracey is a longtime resident of Chicago's South Side. Her parents, Dullers and Bertie Bracey, met during their childhoods in Mississippi, but reconnected in Chicago. Bertie initially left Mississippi with a close friend who, unbeknownst to her at the time, would eventually become her sister-in-law. The duo traveled from Mississippi to Chicago, where Bertie got a bus to Detroit, where her siblings were. Eventually, though, Bertie moved to Chicago, where that same friend's boyfriend, her eventual brother-in-law, reintroduced her to Dellers, who had come to Chicago via Los Angeles. Bertie and Dellers fell in love, got married, and raised a family together in the Chatham neighborhood on the south side. Together, Dellers and Bertie were entrepreneurs, and at different points in Barbara Ann's childhood, they ran a motel, a candy store, a cleaners, Deller's Law Practice, and of course, Barbara Ann's, the barbecue joint named for their daughter, which ran from 1967 to 2016. Growing up, nearly everyone Barbara Ann knew had Southern roots. The majority
5: of people came from some part of the South, whether it be Mississippi, Arkansas, um, Georgia. It would be a
1: rarity when you met a older person that was actually from Chicago. Like many of their friends and neighbors, the Bracys continued to have a strong connection to Mississippi. At Barbara Ann's, the barbecue joint, both Barbara Ann's mother and her uncle, who came all the way up from Jackson, worked as pitmasters. My
5: my uncle ran the business in the afternoon and in the evening and at night, and my mom ran it in the daytime.
1: Like other black pitmasters across the city, Barbara Ann's mother and uncle used an aquarium smoker. They're made um, with stainless steel, and they
5: have racks, uh, generally a upper rack, bottom rack, ground floor, stainless steel, doors open on one side so that you can put the wood in and, and uh, shuffle the wood, glass all the way around, and a stack for the smoke
1: to go out. Like a traditional outdoor fire pit, using the aquarium smoker of Barbara Ann's required a great deal of skill and physical labor.
5: Oh, my mom would work. Oh, she was a pit master. She would work. Oh, she had burns on her arm. Oh, my God. Well, you know, not severe burns, but, you know, she had the markings of a pit master. (laughs) She had the markings.
1: To learn to use the new pit, the Bracey sought the help of Leon Finney, another longtime Chicago barbecue joint owner who trained them in using the new smoker. By the time Barbara Ann's opened in the late 1960s, the Bracies were joining an already established community of Chicago barbecue enthusiasts and entrepreneurs. The cuisine come a long way from the days of the makeshift outdoor smoker. The evolution of Chicago-style barbecue was driven by the skills developed by and the scientific discoveries of Great Migration participants and their descendants.
4: I think that's the thing that, um, you know, scholars often say about Southern food, soul food, Black food, is that the skill level is incredibly
1: high. Again, this is Dr. Chatlin.
4: Like, all of these things require high-level skill, and, you know, working a smoker, my gosh— You have to have an understanding of heat. You have to have an understanding of the fat content in your meats. Um, You know, you have to understand all sorts of things.
1: These understandings, the Dr. Chatlin mentions, helped pitmasters as they encountered the unique challenges of barbecuing in a large city and, like other Black entrepreneurs in Chicago, of navigating an urban economy with employment discrimination, predatory loaning, and redlining. Pitmasters' deep understanding of culinary science and tradition was vital to their use of new technology like the Aquarium Smoker and the creation of new, cost-effective dishes like rib tips. The Aquarium Pit Smoker, which Barbara Ann's family used, allowed Black Chicagoans to barbecue indoors and navigate the spatial constraints they encountered in a dense urban center with freezing winters. With limited space, Pitmasters needed to deploy new meat procurement methods to continue the Mississippi Delta traditions of freshly smoked pork barbecue. So, rather than slaughter hogs in their own often non-existent yards, Chicago pitmasters purchased cuts of meats from wholesalers and butchers. Sometimes unable to buy expensive cuts of meat, pitmasters got creative with what they purchased and how they prepared it. Often, wholesalers and butchers would trim ribs into St. Louis style, separating fat-heavy tips of the rib from the rest of the meat. These rib tips, as a result, were relatively cheap, but loaded with flavor. Recognizing tip's potential, black pitmasters began purchasing the cheap and accessible cut in bulk from slaughterhouses. Once pitmasters began preparing these tips in their smokers, they created rib tips, one of Chicago's signature and most beloved culinary innovations. Both the invention and the subsequent popularity of the rib tip reflect the ways in which Great Migration participants in Chicago responded to economic hardship with both creativity and resilience. Similarly, Hot links, a spicy sausage, are another Chicago barbecue staple that helps tell the story of the Great Migration. At Alice's Barbecue, also on the South Side, hot links are made from smoked rib tip meat that is stuffed into a natural casing. The final product draws on the boiled sausages of Chicago's Eastern European immigrant populations, but it has its own unique seasonings and flavor.
5: The hot links I heard... A lot of people say they taste like Mississippi-style hot links, so that's where it came from.
1: That's Mimi Johnson. She's been working at Alice's ever since she was a kid. Her father, Greg Johnson, taught her and her brother how to do everything in the kitchen. They can smoke meat, make fresh fries, and even prepare their signature hot links. Her father is from Grenada, Mississippi only about an hour's drive from the hometowns of Charlie Robinson or either of Barbara Ann Bracy's parents. For Mimi's father, family and community are incredibly important parts of the barbecue business. After all, Alice's is named for his grandmother who raised him.
5: My father was real heavy with the community. If you came in here and you were hungry and you didn't have no money, he would feed you. He was that type of person, so, yeah, looked out for the churches and everything, did donations.
1: While restaurant ownership allowed families like the Robinsons, the Bracys, and the Johnsons to prosper, black Chicagoans still faced economic discrimination and structural racism. Dr. Chatlin explains.
4: So the growth of what Chicago deemed its black belt um, was shaped by a number of factors. But I think the most important one was housing segregation and the limited options that a black migrant or a black local would have in terms of where they could live. And so in this kind of um, constrained environment, um, African-Americans, kind of figured out how they were going to create community and how they were going to survive within the context of Chicago. And so some of the things that emerge out of Chicago's deeply segregated communities were, you know, neighborhoods like Bronzeville, which tried to create this robust and exciting commercial strip for black consumers.
1: Black migrants faced unjust economic institutions and predatory legal systems. At the same time, though, they built their own institutions, including restaurants, and state claim to their neighborhoods through culture and community.
4: You know, one of the remnants of that period of time is some of the segregation we still see in Chicago, as well as some of the fond memories people have of, you know, Black restaurants and and Black stores and barbershops and hair salons, and a sense of ownership over the community, and it's, um, it's a, it's a really mixed history because on one hand, people suffered greatly under this system of being cut off from resources and people were able to produce, um, a lot of creative work, a lot of, um, nourishing food and a
1: lot of important community connections out of this context. Barbara Ann's experience bears this out. Many institutions and community groups, she remembered, connected people based on shared roots in Mississippi and throughout the South. Local clubs often connected migrants and their descendants to each other and back to their home communities through meetings, social events, and fundraisers. The Ruleville Club, an organization for those with connections to her father's hometown, even had matching t-shirts. Barbara Ann also remembered that her parents, like many other black entrepreneurs, relied on the work of other Black Chicagoans in order to access the capital needed to start a business. The Bracys built Barbara Ann's The Barbecue Joint using a loan from Seaway National, a Black-owned bank on the South Side.
5: It was managed and ran by uh, the Collins brothers who were from Mississippi, and they were all entrepreneurs, they were all businessmen, and people in the neighborhood, a lot of local entrepreneurs, Uh, They would go to Seaway to get business loans from the SBA.
1: Black-owned and managed spaces were a key part of the innovation and community connections that Dr. Chatland describes. While white-owned corporations would later try to profit off of Black communities with franchised fast food restaurants, something that Dr. Chatland explores in her book Franchise, barbecue was and remained a mainstay in Chicago. Exact menu offerings can vary. In recent years, more and more places are offering beef and even turkey on their menus. However, wherever you go on the South Side, you can almost always find rib tips and hot links on a bed of French fries, under white bread, with the mississippi influence sauce on the side.
5: And, but the key to it, you know what the key to it is? If you can bite a piece of rib, and you say, "Why, oh, that's good. Of the seasoning, the
1: sauce
5: is just the plus. The sauce is just
1: the plus. Whether dunked in sauce or served dry, in every rib, hot link, or french fry served on the South Side, there is a history of migration and diaspora against a backdrop of racial violence and terror, of the decision to leave a home in order to build a new one, and the subsequent culture building and resilience in a new city. Here is Dr. Chaplin. I think
4: the reason why this period of time is so fascinating to me is because it's one of both um, kind of hopefulness, but also incredible mixed emotions and a bittersweet sense that finding home and finding a new home isn't as simple as sometimes people think. That migrants who felt like the Jim Crow culture of the South and the culture of violence of the South was intolerable. And yet they still miss their home and they miss their family and they miss their connections. And so, you know, The Great Migration was really about a great deal of faith that one can make choices to improve one's life and a sobering reality that that didn't always come true. This
0: episode of Gravy was reported and produced by Courtney DeLong and Jess Ng. Assistant producers were Brian DeLong and Blake Jones. Special thanks go to Barbara Ann Bracey and Dr. Barbara Ann Bracey. Yep, those are two different people. Rob Adams Jr., Rob Adams Sr., Mimi Johnson, Charlie Robinson, Jim Hatton, Dr. Marsha Chatlin, Dr. Andrew Harper, the Johnson family, and the Charleston Day Club. Oh, and Julia Fine.
2: Oh, and we'd better credit Muddy Waters for the music in this episode. Thank you, Mr. Morganfield.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Chicago Barbecue, be sure and listen to our gravy episode devoted to The Aquarium Smoker.
2: We thank Wendell Patrick for gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music.
0: Managing Editor for Gravy and all other SFA publications is my co-host, Sarah Camp Milam. Gravy's publisher is Mary Beth Lasseter. The heavy editing lift for this season of Gravy comes by way of Olivia Terenzio. Oh, and Katie King is our fact checker.
2: Did this episode whet your appetite for barbecue? Join us for our barbecue symposium, October 21st and 22nd here in Oxford. Together, we'll ask questions about what barbecue is, who makes it, and we'll learn how the craft is changing.
0: Visit us at southernfoodways.org to buy your tickets and to learn more about the event. And while you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall.
2: And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend.
0: Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.
2: So much gravy.